Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. We also live on Twitter with a dedicated podcast account, at EOSceneFrom, and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. Please do follow our Twitter account. Okay, great. So today is the 5th of December 2018. Let me quickly tell our listeners about another 16 launches officially recognised on spacetrack.org. We are missing some. The small Sat Express on SpaceX uh, went up two or three days ago. We've had two big launches, I was going to say this week, but in the last few days. This one that's just gone up, the small Sat Express, has 64 small sats on an astonishing array of different things. Really, it's now time to say welcome to the competition. Yeah. What was on this rocket is is astonishing. And now another one from ISI, a couple more sky sats. And I think Black Sky have now got two two in orbit, Global One and Global Two. So we're getting closer to them building up their constellation. I'm expecting those numbers to increase. The whole sort of launch thing seems to be gathering a pace as well. So even today, just before recording this podcast, although it's not an EO shipment, I was watching the latest SpaceX launch. Oh, the Dragon. Is this the Dragon yeah. thing? Yeah, it's yeah. Dragon. Oh, so this is totally unrelated, but I don't know if you saw. Did you see there was a video that was doing the rounds on social media? I'll try and find it. But it was from the ISS. It was basically going over America as a launch happened. And you could see the, the rocket taking off and making it up into orbit and chasing the ISS. It was really cool. Oh, yeah. Planet had that once. They had one of their doves took a picture of one of their doves being launched into space. Excellent. Time lapse. That was, I think that was about a year ago. Planet are talking about that. This is now the 317th satellite deployment from 10 rockets from 10 different sites in seven countries. I mean, they're just amazing. 100% successful first contact. Shall we crack on with the news? Let me talk a bit about um, Earth Engine. <laughs> no, I want to talk a bit about Sentinel-5P being ingested into Earth Engine. And I found this out a little bit by mistake because I was searching through some tweets, so I don't quite know how long it's been there, so I, I might be wrong, but it, it, I don't think it's been there too long. But Sentinel-5P is NetCDF format. It's coming down, I think, daily into the Sci-Hub. Um, I think it's still at a pre-ops phase, but the guys at Earth Engine are ingesting this. I'm seeing some some of the amazing things that, that you can create now. It's less fiddly. I perhaps would say. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say. Perhaps some um, atmospheric scientists would disagree. As you know, I'm a fan of Google Earth Engine, but one of the beauties is that you can just order it like a sandwich. I hope to see a New Year's Day blog post from you on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I did over Christmas went mad on Google Earth Engine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good for the family. Um, <laughs> the other thing I really wanted to talk about this week was the Amazon disruption called AWS Ground Station. This really surprised me when I saw this. I Initially, I was like, wow, that is a long way from AWS's core business. And then I thought, actually, it's probably not, is it? Anything seems to be possible at this moment in time. It's so exciting that, that Amazon are getting involved in, in this part of the, the value chain. Yeah, yeah. This is really big news. 
I'm seeing more people saying, oh, hang on a second, this is really interesting now. And, you know, getting the access to the cloud, does that mean more more customers getting the data quicker? This sort of, what should we say, near instant access to the satellite data? New customers may just want to know very binary type things. With, with regard to this, to, to put the sort of alternative point of view towards this, there's still a massive part of the world who don't need instant access to satellite imagery. Now, that, that's true. But all year, I've been hearing people at conferences talk about the fact that Earth observation data needs to be transparent to the end user. Whatever information you extract from your imagery just needs to plonk onto somebody's phone or onto their TV. Initially, back at the beginning of the year, I didn't really get what they were saying. Whereas I think what, what these people have been trying to say all year is that there's a whole raft of products that we don't even know that people want yet and we, had, we don't know how to process yet. And it might just be things like, I don't know, up to the minute flood reports, but based on some SAR image that has just been downloaded 55 yeah. seconds before, yeah. whatever, you know, and it just comes in and goes, get out your house right now. Now, with this, I suddenly see the technical side and how it might work alongside what people have been telling me all year on the conceptual side. Yeah, you're right. This is really exciting, big news. And I think over the next six to eight months, as more and more organizations get involved in using this, I think we'll start to see some very exciting things coming out. I think when Sentinel-4, I think it is, goes up, where geostationary atmospheric air quality satellites, what you're saying then about floods is going to be true for environmental health. And that, that is going to be amazing. To be able to say... The air quality at the moment is of such a low point that you should delay what you're doing. These are exciting times. Okay, so I've got a bit of news about one of the NOAA geostationary satellites, GO-17. It has been moved into its final orbit point, which is basically over the Pacific Ocean, and it has sent back its first images of Alaska and Hawaii and Pacific and just like all of the uh, GOES imagery has been for years, it is absolutely top quality stuff and really interesting to look at. I mean, they're just gorgeous images. I'm a big fan of the geostationary weather satellites, as you might have picked up from some of the earlier podcasts. But I think it's great that there's this really long pedigree, almost, of stable satellites collecting imagery over and over again. Is there any truth in the rumour that you're doing another podcast on your own about geostationary satellites. <laughs> Damn, you got me. <laughs> I, I love the images that come back. I just have hardly ever used them. But there's so many things happening that I can't keep up with it in a way. Yeah. The last bit of news that I'm going to put out, and this is this is actually about a month old, so I apologize for that. It's about Open EO, which if you remember back to I think it was our first or our second podcast, Open EO were in the news then because it was a new EU funded project that is basically trying to create an open API to connect various different clients to EO data that are on the cloud. Basically, OpenEO has been going for a year, and they've put out a blog at the end of October, which I only saw last week. But they're now on version 0.3, and they've made quite a bit of progress, it seems, in terms of developing proof of concept. Um, We've got some client APIs. Uh, in Python, R, and JavaScript, and they're all up and about. So yeah, I mean, have a read of that blog post uh, to see what they've done. Yeah, it's been a quick year, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. They've done a lot of stuff. I'm just looking down their GitHub pages. I just want to mention just very briefly two things. The first is 
Novasar reporting back its first image. Um, why do I want to mention it? Because it's a British-made radar satellite, right? So um, this is exciting. Yeah, I saw some pictures of the pyramids. That was Novasar. That's it. it. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Whilst you're talking about SARS, Sean Quigan, who I think is from Sheffield University, won a competition this week for a new technology called Biomass, which is using P-band SAR to weigh the amount of forest on the Earth. Mm. Well done to him and his team. Let's commit to doing a, a topic on SAR. Yeah, okay. And um, the other thing I just wanted to really quickly mention is Phosphor G in Oceana. We'll put a link in the show notes, but a really, uh, the introduction video by Niall Dawson, uh, I think his name, please watch that. Yeah, it is really good. 20, 30 minutes, just find it inspirational. That was my video of the month, for sure. Okay, on with the main part of the podcast for this episode, and uh, we've got another interview for you. We're really excited about this one. So, um, Anne, can you quickly introduce yourself and the Radiant Earth Foundation to our listeners? Sure. Hi, I'm Anne Hale Milleracy. I'm the founder and CEO of the Radiant Earth Foundation. The foundation's been in place now for two and a half years uh, with a, a vision of open geospatial data for positive global impact. We want to connect people globally to earth imagery and data and the tools necessary to meet the world's most critical challenges. We're primarily focused on supporting other nonprofits in the global development arena, but we work with academics and commercial companies excited to support commercial startups all over the globe. I might be wrong here, but I think you added foundation to the name Radiant Earth a year or so back. Uh, can you just explain a little bit about why the change in name? Sure. Originally, uh, the organization was called Radiant.Earth. First off, that dot was a little awkward. <laughs> we thought it was cute, but it actually didn't end up being cute. It was awkward. Secondly, you know, this field, as we'll, we'll discuss, is moving so quickly, and there's so much commercial innovation. And we wanted to make it very clear in our name that we're a not-for-profit and buy down any anxiety. And we want to work with other commercial companies to help them drive their solutions to markets who want to pull their solutions in instead of having a hard time with that customer adoption. So to make it clear that we're a not-for-profit, we added the word foundation. Also, as I'm sure you both know, here in the U.S., there's a company called Radiant Solutions. Yes. XR company. There was a little bit of brand confusion around that. We thought that adding foundation to our name and dropping that dot would help with that brand confusion. And then finally, we do aspire to be able to grant out to others. We're not in that position just yet, but as the years go forward, we'd love to be able to do more. That's brilliant. I didn't realize that you were looking to be in the position where you can send grants out to support other organizations as well. That's really good news. So both Andrew and I have seen the Radiant Earth Foundation platform. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about why you've created this and who you're hoping to attract to it. I mean, this is the first release. We released a minimum viable product back in late 2017. And then in September of 18, another release. And we look forward to continuing to enhance the platform and its usability. Um, so if any of your listeners out there have been on the platform and, and we'd love to hear about what worked and most importantly, what didn't work and what additional functionality you'd like to see added. But the impetus behind Radiant Earth is it, 
and you know, I am kind of getting long in the tooth here, but I've been in this business for 30 plus years. And it used to be that getting your hands on the data was at least 50% of the problem. Yeah. 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 There was so much friction in getting a hold of the data. And so first and foremost, we wanted to be able to aggregate the world's open imagery using a federated catalog in collaboration with all those other organizations around the globe that are willing to serve up this data and to buy down the friction for anybody to be able to see imagery of the place they care about or the place that they're studying. But then also to be able to associate uh, that imagery with some, you know, basic photogrammetry and remote sensing tools based on map algebra and raster algebra. Yeah. So that the analysis could be done inside that space without having to move the data or download the data. And we want to make this available, particularly to the global development community and other nonprofits in the global south free of charge so that people could really experiment. Because I find that when there's a problem in a neighborhood, if the people in the neighborhood solve their own problems, oh, it yeah. gets done faster <laughs> and better. And yeah, yeah. by moving these tools to the cloud, if your neighborhood has access to the cloud, which is a big issue, right? Because many yeah. of the neighborhoods we're focused on don't have the reliable internet access yet, but they will. That, that is coming. And so we wanted to empower people to solve their own problems in their own communities. Okay, cool. When I had a look at it, I think on the back of one of your webinars that you've been doing, the thing that struck me that was really nice was the fact that you've got the sort of visual modeler. Mm -hmm. So being able to just see how things fit together. I mean, both Andrew and I are we're used to using Jupyter Notebooks and that type of thing. But being able to build it up visually, I think is a really nice differentiator that you've got there. Yeah. And you know, we've worked with the Xavier Corporation. Oh, yeah. They're uh, created Raster Foundry, which is open source code. We've worked with them to enhance that capability. And I, if you think about the class of users that we're trying to appeal to, there are really three. Um, there are expert users that, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, I think, around machine learning. Maybe that's 3%, but it's a really impactful 3%, very powerful 3%. The majority of our users want to come through that interface and in that lab and be able to understand how those algorithms are put together. And, you know, they don't have, don't understand Jupyter Notebooks, right? And so yeah. Yeah. that denominator of our customer base, um, I think, really are, appeal to that portion of the lab where they can build their own algorithms and visually see that come together. And then uh, we're talking about adding an interface just to run Jupyter Notebooks. That'll have to be in a future version. Yeah. But I, I do think people are getting a lot more comfortable with that and with Python programming. And so as we see uh, adoption and get feedback from users, we'll look to bring that functionality to the platform as well. I'm just blown away by what you've managed to achieve in two years. You know, I was just looking at GitHub with all the stack stuff, with all of the the platform stuff and all the outreach stuff it, it just is amazing to me having worked in remote locations myself i can definitely see the challenges with the connectivity that you talk about and the, the processing in the cloud it's certainly not practical to download gigabytes of data one of the questions i was going to ask was when a user who's never come across the platform before starts interacting with this stuff um, data sets like Sentinel-2, I noticed that they're at level 1C, I think. Mm -hmm. So that are they being corrected or are you just 
ingesting them? We are pulling from the Raster Foundry S3 bucket. Do you think it's more about actually getting eyes on it and, and using it straight away? Our expectation is that people who find their way to the platform, the vast majority of them have a problem and want to see whether it can help them solve their problem. The vast majority of them have heard about us through our social media and have some degree of familiarity with remote sensing and geospatial analytics. Okay, interesting. So, so are most people using it as a place where they're doing their processing or, or have you got met sort of analytics behind are people downloading lots of data? Most of them are staying in the environment and not downloading the data. Uh, which is music to my ears because yeah. it's so possible to download the data. <laughs> and one of the features that we're starting to see an uptake on, um, which has been well received, is the ability for organizations to set up their own workspace. So yeah. you're a nonprofit and you have six people that you want to work on a project in a given geography. Uh, we set aside workspaces dedicated just to the individual organizations. And so people can share their files, their analysis. You can restrict data. You can upload your own data and restrict it to just people in your organization or other certain users on the platform. So in doing that, it becomes a little bit stickier, right? And people stay inside of our environment. I think it streamlines their workflows and allows them to communicate more directly on their projects. We need to know what people like and what people are using and garner that experience before we look at a either putting in some restrictions for organizations or individuals who are using the platform that aren't our direct constituency. This is more of a sort of sectoral one. And at the moment, we're seeing quite a lot of exciting work in Earth observation around the world uh, with sort of Copernicus in Europe, and we've got tech startups in the US, it seems, and then data cubes being mentioned in Africa and Australia. And like me, you've probably seen quite a lot of trends come and go in remote sensing over the time period of your career. But this, to me anyway, feels a little bit different. I don't know if it's the same for you. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on, on this whole sort of Earth Observation 2.0 or new EO or whatever it is that people like to call it these days. Yeah, I actually talk about this a good bit. I was just on a panel uh, this morning here at New America talking about the innovation in this space and what it means to certain sectors. And this panel in particular was on land rights and using geospatial technologies to help people garner land rights and building cadastres in the developing world. But I have never been more optimistic uh, about the future. Um, when you look at what has happened in the Earth observation space, whether it be from satellites or from drones, and you intersect that with cloud computing and machine learning and the Internet of Things and blockchain, I think yeah. the rapid innovation that's occurring the, the friction that's being pulled out of the system and the creativity and money that's being put in the system is really driving us to, to new solutions. And when you think about all of the uh, satellites on orbit and our ability to collectively map the world at every pixel every day, and then <laughs> yeah. you intersect that with AWS's announcement last week that they're getting into the ground station business, Again, that's buying down more friction in the system. That's pulling out more cost. So I think it's in a very exciting time to be in this space. I only wish I was 20 years younger, <laughs> right? So that I could see the innovation that is occurring. But the intersection of the Internet of Things, 
autonomous vehicles, autonomous vessels, um, cloud computing, machine learning. Um, I think it's really exciting. I've seen two sort of trends almost today being discussed. And the first, as you rightly say about this, near instant satellite data now, perhaps with AWS and reducing the friction and digital globe, being able to get the data on the computer in 55 seconds. Perhaps more, more sort of relevant to our conversation here is, you know, we spoke about the machine learning side and how a lot of the data is derived from, and I say this in the sort of loosest sense, but rich areas of the world and how this is a big challenge now to, to detect and, and use machine learning in, in areas w- which are part of the developing world. There's a, a chain by Ian Schuler from Development Seed, and, he, and he's referring to a non-EO thing where talking about the Google Brain team detecting pictures of grooms in the US and India and it being very good in the US and very bad in India. These are the sort of challenges we're facing now with satellite data, the quality of the training data that we can use. Um, yeah, well, that's actually an area we're real excited to support. And I think it's a natural mission for a, a nonprofit in this space. I agree 100% with Ian that there's lots of training data on corn in Nebraska, right? Yeah. Uh, most of it's intellectual property of a commercial company that's collected it. But we launched uh, an activity called mlhub.earth back in June of this year with funding that we've received from the Eric Schmidt Science Fund and the McGovern Foundation to start to build open image libraries of Earth observations for machine learning. And that right now is focused on land cover globally and the crops of Africa. Um, I would really like to drive deeper into crops globally and focus our efforts on the global south because it is, I think, and I'm quite confident that many of the commercial firms that are out there doing well today and driving the innovation in this space will continue to innovate where they have solid paying customers that have adopted, right? They're ready. They trust that information. They're going to use it on a daily basis. The cost of the sale to the global development community, because it's so fragmented and further behind, is much higher, right? So if there are efforts that Radiant Earth Foundation can support to create these open libraries for anybody to use, whether you're an academic or a government or another nonprofit or a commercial company to do machine learning on ag or land cover, I think that's a good neutral location for us to be. It's a a good effort for the community. We can coalesce an effort to open up labeled images that we, you know, initiate or working with others who are collecting them. So that's one area where we're very focused in doing that. And the other is kind of trying to convene the machine learning and earth observation community around open science and open algorithms. Um, And to that end, we have a number of sessions at the American Geophysical Union Conference next week here in Washington, D.C., and are hosting an event for all of those who are presenting on Earth observations and machine learning, a social event, just so that we can all network and get to know each other and hopefully build that community and nurture that community. Will your um, ML Hub, A, ultimately connect into the platform, but B, how will you judge the quality 
of the training data that you're getting in? It's a mixture of field collection data and then, um, uh, you know, harvested automatically. So it will be a mixture of that. And quality is of the utmost importance, right? Making sure yeah. it's uh, high quality data. And I'm sure it'll take some time to, to build that out. To get to your other question about will you be able to run it directly inside the Radiant Earth Foundation platform? Not right now. Yeah, but that's certainly our vision. It's on our technology roadmap. So in in January of 2018, I found on the internet that you won the Geospatial World Woman of the Year award, and so congratulations for that. But I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about the number of women in Earth observation at the moment, and how would you go about in trying to encourage more to join the sector? Wow. Well, so thank you. Well. <laughs> You know, I remember the very first remote sensing conference I went to. It was March of 1982. <laughs> it was the American Society of Photogrammetry and Remote Sensing. It was in Washington, D.C. There were, I think, 1,800 people there, and there were two women, right? Wow. Uh, I was a graduate student. And uh, Dr. Bobby Linkowski, who you know, certainly was a pioneer in this field, a lot has changed. A lot has gotten so much better. Um, I was in Malaysia, uh, I think it was last February. I was in Malaysia for a conference, and um, I was surprised to see how many women were there. I would say of uh, the professionals, at least 40% of the audience was female. And then I went to the more technical sessions, right? Because this was the general session. I went to the pretty technical se sessions, particularly on agriculture. And I would say 55 to 60% of the people in the room, and clearly the ones that were paying attention, were the women. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's all great. I mean, I think everybody needs more role models. I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, sure. working with women in this field. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to work with anybody in this field, uh, young people coming into the field. Yeah. I think science is cool now, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Finally. <laughs> and a lot of the efforts globally around STEM, I think, have started, you know, to take root. And I, I feel really positive about the future for any person in this field, and particularly for women. Do you get a sense of the sort of graduate program that's going on in America? Because in the UK, I, I think that the remote sensing side isn't quite as big as it perhaps should be. Yeah. And, and this is an area that's always baffled me is the division between remote sensing and GIS. I had the good fortune of studying under a professor of remote sensing who was exceptionally well known, John Jensen, whose office was right next to a professor of GIS who's exceptionally well known, Dave Cowan. And I always walked the line between the two um, my entire educational career and have been able to move back and forth between the two. I definitely see more women in the GIS field yep. than in the remote sensing field. But I'm starting to see that change. As I said, my, my experience in Malaysia was just eye-opening and, and certainly warmed my heart. We have a relatively large number of students and early career professionals in our listenership. And um, earlier this year, we released a podcast about skills needed in the earth observation sector. I was just wondering what the key skills are that you look for in your technical staff at the Radiant Earth Well, Foundation. the ones I throw my arms around and, and <laughs> thankful that they uh, have joined us in our mission 
is pretty clear. And I am so wickedly positive about the millennials. I mean, I, I know a lot of people my age beat up yeah. on, <laughs> on younger generations, but I have found that they are exceptionally well-trained, not only just in the tool set, but in the underlying science, right? And so that's, I think, great. Um, but I expect when I hire someone, they're going to be exceptionally well-trained technically. Yeah. What I find sets them apart first is to be a good listener, particularly if you're a remote sensing scientist, to be a good listener. And then to be able to communicate without tripping all over the technology, the results, right? <laughs> so, you know, our customers don't need to know what, which band on Sentinel 2A it was that unlocked the secret or what's the revisit time of the constellation of Sentinel-1, right? Our customers never need to know that. Yeah. What, they, what we need to listen to is what's their problem and then be able to communicate to them without intimidating them and throwing multisyllabic words all about technology back at them, how we're gonna help solve their problem or how we solve their problem or if we can. And so that's what I look for, people who can listen and communicate back to end users. And if you find a technology person that can do all of that, I, I suggest you give them a pension and keep them by your side. <laughs> For a long time, we were trying to get adopted, right? And now we've been discovered. But we're still in this technology yeah. pitch where we talk way too much <laughs> yes. about how we made the sausage instead of how the sausage tastes or you know, what, what good it is. You know, like your, your phone, you, know, you just want to use Google Maps to get from, you know, from one place to the other. You don't need to know about GNSS and GLONASS and Beidou and Galileo and GPS. You don't need to know about GPS radio occultation or bending angles. So I still think we do a little bit too much of that. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was really good fun. Very interesting. Well, great. Well, thank you guys for thinking of us. Thank you very much, Anne. All right. Take care. I just wanted to say that I am attending the GRSG on Tuesday the 11th of December so I will be leading a Python workshop please do sign up on the GRSG's page I'll stick a link in the show notes it'll be great to see you and let's talk a bit about Python and EO if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Matt underscore Andrew. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, you can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. That's it for now. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Let's start high-fiving, because that is amazing. Path is not an easy one to walk through So take me with you And you don't have to go alone The life is growing Past you, if I could ask you.
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.